Well, it was about uh, 1.30 in the afternoon on uh, Sunday, March 25th, 2012. And uh, Cheryl's phone rang, and uh, it was her dad calling to say that uh, Cheryl's mom had suffered a heart attack earlier in the day and uh, she was in the hospital and that she was going to be having uh, bypass surgery the next morning at six o'clock in the morning at Carl Hospital. And so that set us into a a whole uh, frenzy of activity to uh, get things together to make the trip from Oklahoma City here to to Champaign-Urbana to be here with her folks for the surgery and to be here for a while afterwards to help uh, during her mom's recovery. And uh, as we got on the road, it was about four in the afternoon, and uh, got onto I-44 in uh, Oklahoma City, and we're making our way here. Uh, you know, our minds were swirling with all kinds of thoughts and concerns and questions about what was in front of us. We'd never walked down this path before in our lives, and uh, so... Uh, as we prayed and as we talked, you know, we were just rehearsing all kinds of what-ifs about what, what might lie ahead for us. One of the what-ifs that we didn't consider happened as we were making our way through St. Louis. It was about uh, 1130 at night, and uh, the traffic in St. Louis was about what you would expect it to be at 1130 at night. And uh, one thing I didn't expect was to suddenly see flashing lights from a police car behind me. And uh, pulled over, and uh, the nice officer informed me that I was doing 75 in a 60-mile-per-hour zone. And I couldn't deny it. I was thinking, surely nobody's out this time of night, and uh, we need to get there. And... uh, Fortunately, she, uh, she just told me to slow down and watch my speed more closely, uh, which I was glad to do from that point on. Uh, set the cruise control on exactly the speed limit from, from there on. When those flashing uh, red and blue lights came on behind me, I said what I usually say at such times. Uh, my go-to word in situations that surprise me or frustrate me, or are potentially bad for me, is this. Unbelievable. In fact, I've said it so much over the years that my kids, which I'm glad that uh, my oldest son, Kyle, is here. Cheryl and I, our oldest son, Kyle, is here with his wife, Holly, and their three kids. Hudson is back there, and uh, Lincoln just went up with the kids, and uh, their youngest, our little granddaughter, Afton, who just turned one, Uh, She's upstairs in the nursery. Uh, Glad to have them here with us. Today is Holly's birthday and Cheryl's birthday, so we get to celebrate that together. And uh, they're here here with us for a week, but I digress. My my kids have heard me say the word unbelievable so often they can anticipate when it's going to come out of my mouth. Uh, They know the kind of situations where I am prone to, to say that. My being stopped by the police, though, was really not unbelievable. I mean, I was exceeding the speed limit by uh, more than a little. I was guilty. 
Although in my own mind, I didn't think I was that guilty. I mean, I could justify why I was going that fast and uh, was prepared. And I think I even did share with the police officer why I was going that fast. I really was guilty. What was really unbelievable in that situation was the fact that the officer let me go with just a verbal warning. That was grace. And grace is always unbelievable. In Romans chapters 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul confronts us with two unbelievable things. He confronts us with our unbelievable guilt. But then he reveals to us God's unbelievable grace. Unbelievable grace extended in response to unbelievable guilt. Last time I preached, I brought my big study Bible up here with me. By the time I was done, my arm hurt. So I brought my little Bible today that I take to the hospital sometimes when I go to see people. The only problem is, for my 55-year-old eyes, it's very tiny print. So if I miss a word, just bear with me in reading. Let's begin by taking a look at our unbelievable guilt. From nearly the beginning of the letter to the Romans, Paul seeks to establish how guilty we really are before a holy God. And he starts off in chapter 1, about verse 18, and going through the end of the chapter. And he paints a picture of humanity that sounds very much like today. In fact, it's a picture of humanity at every period of human history from the fall until now. Paul talks about our proclivity to idolatry, our tendency towards impurity, our lust for immorality. That's who we are as human beings. Fallen, sinful, completely corrupt. And it's as if Paul can anticipate then, as he's kind of painted a picture of the world in general, and Paul anticipates the religious folks. And they kind of sit back and go, yeah, that's right. That's the way those people are. And so then Paul comes to chapter 2, and he says, you're no better. You're no better. They may be more brazen. They may, may be more open about their sin. You just have sin against God that takes place in a less brazen way. You're still a lawbreaker. You're still unbelievably guilty before God. And so he goes on kind of bringing those points home until you come to chapter 3. 
And in verse 9 of chapter 3, Paul drives the nail home with a single blow when he says this. What then? Are we Jews any better? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says, you cannot deny man's sinful condition. Every day you hear man's sinful speech. All around you, you see man's sinful actions. And why is that? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's you and that's me. Did you notice the exceptions Paul gives, though, in those verses? Well, hopefully you didn't because there aren't any. There are no exceptions to this. He uses those extreme words, none, all. This is where we find ourselves unbelievably guilty. And so Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This then is the extent of our unbelievable guilt. No one can offer an explanation as to why. No one can try to give some rationalization that will appease God. Every mouth is stopped and the whole world is held accountable before God. That's why Paul says a little bit later in verse 23, that familiar verse, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory, the manifold perfections of God. What Paul paints here is a clear picture of the utter depravity of every human being. Apart from God's grace in Christ. We are all God-haters. Even if we do religious stuff, we're doing it for our own justification. We are seeking to deny the very facts that God 
presents before us that we are all guilty. And as a result of our guilt, we are unbelievably and decidedly dead. Somehow in our depravity, we convince ourselves that we can, we can win in this game. We can outfox Satan and we can get around God's righteous law. And yet no one ever wins in that game. Paul says a little bit later in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 20. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, righteousness never even really crossed your mind. You were free from it. It was not a concern to you. You were a slave to sin. Even in doing religious stuff, righteousness didn't enter the picture. It was a means of self-justification. So when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is what? Death. The end of those things is death. And verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Because of our guilt, we are decidedly dead. We couldn't let this day go by without going to the book of Ephesians. And you know the passage Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, here we come back to that all-inclusive term, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. dead because we are guilty before holy God we are dead in our trespasses and sins one of my favorite lines from the movie The Princess Bride is when uh, the magician makes a comment about uh, I can't remember the guy's name but he's laying there and uh, they're saying oh he's dead he said no he's only mostly dead 
Sometimes we take that view of ourselves, don't we? Spiritually speaking. I'm not really dead. I'm just mostly dead. The picture scripture paints is this. We are not mostly, but completely dead. Stories told, David Platt tells it of a an old preaching professor who would take his homiletic students to the cemetery every semester. Perhaps you've read this story before. As they stand there in the midst of scores of headstones, the professor told his students that he wanted them in all sincerity to speak over the graves and call people from the ground to rise up and live. And uh, there were not a few chuckles and more embarrassment among those students. And yet one by one, they tried to do that. And what was the outcome? Nothing happened. Nothing happened. And the professor would then look at his students and remind them of a central truth of the gospel, which is this, that people are spiritually dead just as those corpses in the cemetery are physically dead. Only words from God and the working of the Holy Spirit can bring them to life. The problem is, we don't believe that we are unbelievably dead because of our unbelievable guilt. We just think we are mostly dead. But Platt goes on to say this. He says, this is the real reality about humanity. We are each born with an evil, God-hating heart. Many people will say, well, I've always loved God. But the reality is, no one has. We may have loved a God that we made up in our minds, but the God of the Bible we hate. In our evil, we rebel against God. We spurn our Creator's authority over us. We are not evil, we think, and certainly not spiritually dead. I mean, haven't you heard of the power of positive thinking? I can become a better me and experience my best life now. Meanwhile, the biblical gospel says, you are an enemy of God, dead in your sin. And in your present state of rebellion, you are not even able to see that you need life, much less cause yourself to come to life. That is the picture that Paul paints for us here in Romans chapter 3. When Cheryl and I were flying through St. Louis at 75 miles an hour, what was the thing that told the police officer we were going that fast? I'm assuming she had a radar gun there in the car. She wasn't just guessing. She was pretty clear, you're going 75 in a 60. God aims the 
radar gun, so to speak, of his law at us and shows us that we are unbelievably guilty before him. We could run through all the commandments that God has given in Scripture, but let's just boil it down to the two that Jesus says takes in all of it. The first and greatest commandment is what? To love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, not taking into account all the other specifics of the law that we could be measured against. Let's just talk about those two. Have you always at all times in every way loved God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Guilty. Have you always at all times in every way Love those around you as you love yourself. Not just your neighbor, but what about the people closest to you? Your husband, your wife, your children, your mom, your dad. Even there we find ourselves guilty. And we're guilty not just of violating a traffic law but of treasonous rebellion against the holy God. And the light of God's word flashes all around us. And just like if you've ever been stopped by the police, you know this feeling. The worst thing is those stinking flashing lights. Because it's telling everybody that goes by, this person has done something wrong. And the light of God's word flashes all around us, exposing us for who we really are. Unbelievably guilty sinners. But aren't you glad for the gospel, the good news? Because that's not where the story ends. It's not just that we are unbelievably guilty but God has extended to us unbelievable grace that grace is really the theme of Paul's letter to the Romans God's grace in the gospel that is appropriated by faith in Christ alone Paul sets it out at the very beginning in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God's Unbelievable grace revealed by faith in Jesus Christ. After having driven home the point of man's unbelievable guilt before the holy God, Paul turns a corner in Romans chapter 3. 
And in verse 21, Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That flashing light that shows us how guilty we are. That straight edge that shows us how crooked we are. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How do we receive God's unbelievable grace? What does Paul say three times in that passage? It is by faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Received by faith. But what does that mean, to receive it by faith? Is that just saying, okay, uh, that kind of makes sense, and I don't see any other way out, so yeah, I'll believe that. Is it just some kind of mental assent to a certain set of facts? It is that, but it's more than that. And Paul wants us to understand how deep that faith is to go within us and what it means to really believe in Jesus Christ and to trust in God's grace in the form of his son. And that's why Paul goes on in the next chapter to talk to us about Abraham. Father of the faithful. And Paul goes into a bit of discussion about Abraham and his justification by faith. God first made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. God said this to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's where it started. Abraham was about 60 when God said that to him. Fifteen years pass. Nothing really changes. 
You come to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham is now around 75 years old. And this conversation takes place between Abram and God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. More time passes. Almost 25 years. Still no son. When you come to chapter 17... When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And within a year, Isaac was born. Paul looks back on that story of Abraham's faith. And he points then to us as that being the kind of faith that God wants from us. Look in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Actually, we'll start in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he has been told. 
so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. What was the situation that Abraham faced here? God had made a promise. It had been 40 years or so since the promise had first been given. It had not come to fruition yet. And yet, what was Abraham's response to God? Paul tells us here that though it seemed impossible for Abraham to father a child and for Sarah to bear a child... That when Abraham looked at the facts and considered it all, he didn't stay there. He didn't linger on how the situation itself was. His trust, his faith, his confidence was where? In God and in his promises and in his ability, as Paul says, to do what he had promised. And so rather than linger on the situation, Abraham chose instead to linger on God and his might and his power and his ability to do what he had promised to do. See, here's why Paul uses Abraham as an example for us. When we are dead in our trespasses and sins, our tendency is to say this, well, I'm, I'm guilty, but I'm not that guilty. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. But then we become convinced of our unbelievable guilt, and then we fall on the other side of things, and we say, there is no way that God can forgive me. My sins are too great. My situation is... Is completely and utterly hopeless. I am lost and will forever be under the wrath of God. Rightly so. And Paul wants us to see here that yes, your guilt is unbelievably great. But God's grace is unbelievably greater. And who are you going to believe? You see, when we fail to put our faith in God and in his promises... We are saying more about our tendency to think that God is not able than anything else. God is able to do what he has promised, even forgive unbelievably guilty sinners. And that's why Paul goes on to say in Romans 4 that Abraham's example is meant for you and for me. Verse 23 in Romans 4. But the words, it was counted to him 
were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's the promise. That's what we're called to believe. It seems unbelievable that one man could die for many and that one man's righteousness could be imputed to many. And yet that is exactly what Scripture says, is it not? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's unbelievable. And that's exactly what God calls us to believe because he is able to do what he has promised. God wants us to take these words in Romans personally. Not just the testimony regarding our unbelievable guilt, but the promise regarding God's unbelievable grace. I appreciate the words of John Piper regarding this passage in Romans chapter 4. When Paul says, these words are not just about Abraham, but they're written for us. Piper says, God is saying to you now, faith will set you right with me. Trust me. I will count your faith as righteousness. Do you hear him? Trust me. Rest in me. Lean on me. Count on me. It will be all right. I have a righteousness for you. You don't have any for me. But I have mine for you. Trust me. It will be credited as your righteousness. You know the gospel. Christ died for our sins. In his body, he bore our sins on Calvary's tree. His death, his blood paid for our sins. And his resurrection was the final stamp of approval by which God declared that his son's work was complete. It is unbelievable grace that is appropriated by us only by faith. It is faith in the living Lord that makes all the difference in life, at death, and for eternity. I came across this story, a true story. Of a woman named Charlotte, an elderly woman who was in the hospital. 
And her pastor's name was Jeff. And the story goes like this. That Jeff stopped by the hospital to see one of his dearest senior saints, Charlotte, who was in her 80s. And though she was old in body, she was young enough in heart to be blessed by Jeff's ministry. She paid close attention as Jeff proclaimed the glory of the story of God. How the world began with God's good creation, suffered a cataclysmic fall that ruined us and everything else, and yet is being redeemed by Jesus' cross and resurrection and will be consummated when Jesus returns and delivers this world to his Father. Charlotte said that learning God's story had changed her life. I get it now, she told anyone who would listen. The parts of the Bible make sense when you read them in light of the whole. For the first time in my life, I understand how my salvation fits into the larger picture. And now Charlotte was dying. She chatted with her pastor about family, the church, and the general quality of hospital food. And then Jeff said a prayer and promised to come see her again. Jeff was minutes from home when his cell phone rang. It was the floor nurse calling from the hospital. Charlotte told me to contact you, she began. She said that it's time for her to die. And she told me to tell you not to hurry. She'll wait until you get here. This is where I can identify with Jeff. Jeff turned his car around and drove slightly faster than Charlotte had recommended. He feared that she would die before he returned, and he prayed that God would grant her sufficient stamina to hold on. He need not have worried. When he entered her room, panting from his swift jog from the parking garage, Charlotte called him over to her bed. She took his hand and looked into his eyes and said, Pastor, tell me the story one more time. And so for the next 20 minutes, with a heavy but grateful heart, Jeff reviewed the story that had saved their lives. He told Charlotte about their gracious triune God who created our world from love and for his glory. He reminded her that God put us here as his image bearers to take care of the world on his behalf. God intended us to flourish in all of our relationships with him, with one another, and with creation. And we would as long as we rested in his care and obeyed his will. Jeff then described the destruction of the fall and how our rebellion against the one true and living God had shattered everything that we were meant to be. We rejected God's love, fought with each other, and brought a curse upon the entire creation. We were doomed, unwilling, and unable to take the first step toward reconciliation. We were without hope. And without God in the world. Jeff and Charlotte remembered how God refused to let the world end this way. And he sent his son to rescue us from sin and death. Jesus offered his sinless life in our place. Absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved. So that we could be adopted as the righteous children of God. Our loving Lord was crucified, dead and buried. But three days later he shocked the world by rising from the dead. Jesus ascended to heaven where he rules the world and intercedes for us before our merciful Father. 
He will soon return to make all things new. He will restore our humanity, repairing our relationships with God, each other, and creation. And he will bring joy to the world far as the curse is found by abolishing sin, disease, and death. No more tearful goodbyes. Because Jesus lives, we too shall live with him here, glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Jeff's voice cracked and Charlotte's eyes filled with tears. It's true, she whispered. I know it's true. She smiled and then cleared her throat and asked, Pastor, will you call for the nurse? When the nurse entered the room, Charlotte said with a resolute voice, Nurse, I'd like a clean robe and I'd like my teeth. She turned to Jeff and patted his arm. It's time. It's going to be okay. Jeff left the room while the nurse dressed Charlotte in a white robe and put her teeth in. And when she was ready, Jeff returned, took her hand, kissed her on the forehead. As Jeff prayed beside her, Charlotte raised her eyes toward heaven. And with a serenity that comes from knowing how the story ends, she repeated the words, Thank you, thank you, thank you. By the third thank you, she had fallen asleep. And on the fourth, she was waking up in heaven. I get... uh, tearful about that because I've been there with people in that kind of situation. And it is my my tears are tears of gratitude for God's grace to me. It's all unbelievable. My guilt before holy God is unbelievable. It is a monstrous debt. Like that 10,000 talent debt that a servant ran up before his king. One that he could not possibly hope to repay and yet somehow... He thought that he could. And yet the king in his mercy and grace forgave the servant of that debt. That's what God has done for me and for you in Christ. I love the music that we sing here on Sundays. I appreciate the the work that Caleb does in picking out our music and preparing for us and those that that work on the worship team with him. I appreciate the words to the songs. And all throughout the songs this morning has been the message of both our guilt and God's grace. And I'm reminded of the words of an old hymn 
wonderful grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. For the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches even me. See, God's grace is not only meant for our salvation, but for the praise of his glory. Cast yourself wholly on Christ. As another old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. If Christ has saved you, may that always be something that results in praise and glory to God. And if this morning you know that you stand before holy God as a guilty sinner, call upon the name of Jesus. Trust in him alone. And the promise of God's word is this, you will be saved. Would you pray with me? Lord, how I thank you for the blessing of this day. Thank you for the blessing of your word, which tells us exactly where we are in our standing with you, that we are truly, unbelievably guilty sinners. That that because of your great love for us, Christ died for us. This is the true promise that for everyone who puts their faith in Christ, repents of their sin, that Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Lord, may we praise you for your goodness. May we call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. In his name, amen.